Hello everybody and welcome to episode 70 of the Retro Rants Retro Gaming Podcast. Uh, this is a long-awaited uh, part one of what is going to be a series of episodes um, of our recent interview with game designer, writer, audio dramatist, and just amazing, amazing personality, Neil Halford. Uh, Halford, sorry. We... I uh, had the pleasure of talking to Neil about a week and a half, two weeks ago, and I've done a lot of interviews on this show, Nick and I have done a lot of interviews on this show, and I have to say, this was probably one of our favorites. Neil was just incredible, super generous with his time, which is why we had to split this up, but it, this really is like the best recap of some of the coolest moments in gaming history. Uh, if you're a fan of Betrayal at Crondor, of Planet's Edge, of science fiction, uh, Neil is just an amazing person, amazing character, and Nick and I had so much fun uh, talking to him, and we hope to do so again. So, without further ado, here is episode 70 and our interview with the amazing Neil Halford. but I, I usually get oh sorry i forgot how rude craig is yeah i just i was just gonna roll it because we're talking so why not <laughs> all right that sounds fine that sounds fine <laughs> sorry yeah we're, did you want to record a start or did you want to record a formal start here or no you know what i can i can do that in post um, okay all i'll right. just keep the conversation going and have some fun sure, sure. <laughs> uh so where would you like to start um I'm thinking, like, let's let's start at the beginning. One of the things that okay, I... Okay, that's, really, that's a really long time ago. I don't know if you can cover... <laughs> a long time ago. Millions of years ago. Okay, so supernovas exploded, created heavy metal. <laughs> okay. All right, we might have to fast forward a bit from there. <laughs> okay. At least to the dinosaurs when, okay. when, I, when I first roamed the Earth. Um <laughs> Oh man! Well, one of the things I, I, I you know, obviously when um, Roberta, uh, the amazing Roberta Vaughn from the Classic Gamers Guild, uh, game like introduced you know Neil and I to each other. She knew I was a very huge fan of Betrayal at Crondor, and I have been for many years. It's it's one of those games that uh, I play, you know, maybe once every other year or every you know every couple of years. I I just love to dig it out and play it because it's it's one of my favorite games. And uh, so I was really jazzed to get, to get the chance to talk to you. But, you know, one of the things Nick and I love to do, you know, when we get the chance to interview somebody is kind of like really do a deep dive. And, and like, yeah, I knew you did Crondor, but like, I never knew you were into like audio dramas and stuff like that. And I was thinking, you know, Nick, if you want, we could start there. But how did that, um, how'd that come about? Like, how'd you know, like, that was a, a thing for you back then? Oh, uh, okay. Wow. Okay. So, um, Whenever I was in high school, my last year in high school, uh, my best buddy, Ron Bollinger, was working at a microscopic uh, C&W station that was in my hometown called KTOW. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I would come over and visit with him. And uh, it was kind of a weird little station. The format was, I don't know, inspired by dropping large doses of acid, I think. Uh, <laughs> 
because uh, they were in the in the daytime, they would play really, really old classic country. So you know, you'd be looking at at you know Patsy Cline and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, all, all of those good folks. Uh, but then at night, they would switch over to radio, where and they would become a top forty. A radio station playing like Casey Kasem and all this weird wow. stuff overnight. Uh, then they would also play uh, whenever the because we were in uh, in Sand Springs, Oklahoma, which is just outside of Tulsa. So you know we're about mm -hmm. seven miles uh, to the to the west of Tulsa. And so whenever the uh, we were an affiliate uh, for the Kansas City Royals, and so they oh, played wow. the they did the the Kansas City Royals games. Uh, and also the whenever the Louisiana Downs were going on uh, for the races, uh, they would cover those. Uh, uh -huh. In addition to also being the, the, the radio station that played all of the local high school football games. So they would do all the coverage for that stuff. So uh, anyway, it was a very schizophrenic f uh, format. It's a hell of a spread. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it was really kind of nuts, though. But I mean, it's an AM radio station. Sure. Uh, the guy who owned it... Uh, Red Graham had bought it from Roy Clark because you know Roy Clark uh, is a Tulsa boy, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know I'll say for your audience because some of your your audience might be young enough that they don't know who the hell Roy Clark was. It's possible. <laughs> uh, he was a, a major uh, a country and western recording star, yep. but he was also one of the stars of a television variety show called Hee Haw. But yep. anyway, uh, so anyhow. Uh, I would go over there and hang out with my bud, Ron Bollinger. And whenever we were getting close to the end of the year, I said, wow, this is really kind of cool. How do you get a gig over here? And Ron said, well, if you talk to uh, to, to, to uh, uh, the, the lady who's basically uh, the, she was sort of like Lonnie Anderson's character on, uh, on WKRP. Okay. Uh, she, she was, you know, she was like the lady who actually ran the station. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, we had a program director and we had the owner, but she was the one who, uh, uh, who knew what was going on. So, so I talked to Kay and she said, well, why don't you come over and you can intern with Ron and then uh, you can start doing this stuff uh, after you, you graduate. So uh, it was like three or four days after I got, I graduated from high school, bam, I had a job working as a uh, disc jockey for KTOW. That's awesome. Uh, and so it was crazy. You know, I mean, it was a great gig. I mean, for the time being, you know, it was, you know, huge amount of money. I was making more than minimum wage. It was $4.50 uh, cents an hour. Hey, <laughs> Which, if you're making more than minimum wage out of high school, hey, you're doing pretty good. I, I was. I mean, it was just a couple of days out of high school. And I had this kind of cake job because uh, I was uh, on the night shift. And so initially, I was just punching commercials in between uh, uh, the, the regular. So we were play local commercials uh, during these top 40 programs that are coming out of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had a kind of cake job. I'm just sitting down there and in between things, I, I'd like punch a couple local commercials and then for another 15 to 20 minutes, I got nothing else to do. So uh, my uh, initially I'm recording uh, or, or while, while we're uh, while I'm working at the radio station, I've got novels sitting there. So I read pretty much the <laughs> entire Doom series while I was... <laughs> Damn. <laughs> uh, while I was working uh, at the station in between spots. So anyway, my bud and I uh, really enjoyed it because uh, most of the people who worked in this radio station were kids. Uh, so anywhere from between like my age, I was 17 at the time, mm -hmm. up to uh, several people who were in their early 20s. We had a handful of, of codgers that had been there for a long time. So I had an, an old guy. Oh, God, he must have been 40. 
<laughs> um, but but he he dressed up like Elvis, and he uh, worked, he owned his own radio, his own radio station, owned his own record store over in West Tulsa, and so he would bring in this box full of of like fifties rockabilly stuff. And so it was just close enough to us format. So, uh, so he would play the morning show after me, mm -hmm. uh, after I got off work. So, so I would work you know, from, the, uh, from, I think, midnight until uh, 7 in the morning, I think it was, 6 or 7 in the morning. And then he would come out, come on after me. Anyway, but most of the folks who were working for this radio station are kids. We don't know what the hell we're doing. Uh, we've had the basic training about, you know, what to do and what push, buttons to push and all this other crazy mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, but... Uh, I really genuinely think that the guy who owned the station, the guy, uh, his name was Red Graham. Mm -hmm. And I think Red was actually running the station as a tax shelter. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, because our, our ratings, you know, we were this little, t well, it was, we were kind of an odd station. They're back in the day, and I, I don't know if this is still a thing or not, but back in the day, uh, they had what were called clear channel stations. Yep. And so, at, uh, so during the daytime, you know, we would have, uh, uh, we would be sort of, we could reach the local town and, and those areas uh, around us. But at night, uh, they would basically have other channels that would go off air and we would crank up our signals and we'd be bouncing signals off of California. Oh, that's cool. Uh, um, and so, uh, so we would, you know, crank up the the amp or the the uh, our, our power at night, and so uh, so it was this kind of weird thing is that during the daytime you hear us locally, you know, in like basically eastern Oklahoma, but at nighttime sometimes you know, we get phone calls from people calling in from California or New Mexico or all these crazy places. Impressive when you consider the long distance race yeah. at that time, which I remember well. <laughs> yeah, and so, so you know, it was like you know, uh, I can't remember. It's like five hundred thousand watts at night or whatever crazy thing it wow. was. Uh, so, so uh, anyway, so this wasn't uh, something that used to happen all the time. Is is that you have certain AM stations that would have this, and so, uh, but even with with all of that, we were not a station that had gigantic ratings, uh, right. and 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 also by this point we had with this crazy schizophrenic uh, uh, <laughs> uh, format that we had. I mean, of course, the the, the irony was is we had all you know uh, our audience was about as diverse as you could possibly get, and that's of course, amazing. What audience we had depended on what time of day we had. Uh, it yeah. was um, so anyhow. So uh, we didn't have a lot of stuff to do. Uh, you know, for, for those of us who were working on the night shifts and and things like that, we you know we, a lot of time sitting around twiddling our thumbs yeah. uh, and punching commercials in between. You know, broadcasters either coming in from Chicago or coming from the Royals games or or or, or the Downs. And so sitting right next to our booth was a, a production studios. Now, by when you think about production studios today, it's nothing nearly as fancy as that. But okay. it's still professional recording equipment. Like uh, a booth and, and stuff it, like it, that. Booth, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a booth, you know, the walls are, are carpeted up all the way around, and so it's wall-to-wall -wall carpeting in this little tiny, probably just a little bit bigger than your average closet, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and we've got a, a uh, it was really fancy because we had a, a Fostex B10 recorder, which is a really high tech stuff at the time. And we had a DAT recorder, uh, but we didn't get that until fairly late. Uh, I was going to say, this is 84. Wow. So, uh, this is a starting 84. Well, 
this is sort of evolution. We got the the B10, I think, at about eighty five or eighty six. Uh, but, wow. but 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 we had. But again, it's it's a still professional. I've got a, a, a you know a, a professional broadcast uh, a mixer, and then of course this was primarily there to record commercials. Yep. Uh, and record our PSAs and other stuff, and so uh, so folks understand is that that how things were handled back in the days. You would have what they called a cart, which uh, would by all ball uh, resemblances would looks like a an eight track cart. If you've ever heard mm -hmm. of an eight track, that's exactly what this was, except it was in a loop, and so you would play it, and it would go back. Uh, it would be like thirty seconds long or a minute long, and you'd record your stuff on it. So, mm -hmm. uh, so we had we had the cart recorders and all that stuff. So. Anyway, this booth is, is primarily there just to handle commercials and PSAs and, and stuff like that. Well, my buddy and I said, you know, whenever we've got these huge amounts of time, whenever there's nothing going on, well, let's mess around in, in here. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, my buddy and I are both, I'm 17, he's 18, and we have another buddy of, our, buddy of ours who's, you know, the old man at like 22 or something like that. <laughs> uh and we started messing around and said, you know, it'd be kind of funny that, that every, uh, the top of the hour, we of course had to do the weather report. Okay. So we decided, wouldn't it be really fun to record the, to do something fun with a weather, weather report. And so we'll do uh, the weather report for Sand Springs, Oklahoma, but we'll pretend as though we're broadcasting from some exotic location. Uh, <laughs> and so we're saying, okay, the, you know, tonight Sand Springs brought, weather broadcast is brought to you by from, you know, Transylvania. And you'd hear like wolves howling and, and, <laughs> and bats and, and crazy things like that. Um, we did probably uh, one that would not be nearly as appreciated as we did one from Belfast. And so you hear machine guns and oh. bombs. Uh, 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 back before we, we uh, things got ironed out in in North uh, Northern oh, Ireland. Ireland, right? Yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, so, th so we were initially started just goofing off and doing stuff like that. Oh, you guys must have been having a ball. Oh, we were having a great time. We were having a great, great time. But it, I, you know, I, I learned so much during the process of doing that because, again, uh, you know. We're just messing around. I don't really have any any specific deadlines for the stuff that we're doing. I don't have somebody kind of sitting on top of me saying you have to do this. You know, it's just like, okay, let's see what happens with this. And again, no, we know we our, our ratings are so low. It's like no one will care if we, we <laughs> will care about what we're doing. And so it's not like like you know unless and short of just violating the terms of our FCC contracts because you know I had to have you know I, I applied. I got my license from the FCC. Mm -hmm. Um, so we decided when, you know, one time my, you know, Ron and I and our buddy, uh, Mark are all sitting around saying, Hey, let's do something really fun for Halloween. And we always said, you know, we, we've got this, we've got this, this recording booth and we were all, of course, grew up and knew all about war of the worlds and the Orson Welles. Yeah, oh yeah. So we said, let's do our own version of that, except it's not going to be about aliens. We're going to base this on a local legend. And so there was a, we had our own local uh, legend about a guy called the Bulldog Man. Mm -hmm. So we wrote it up this, this entire script and the idea was going to be about, you know, talking about the, the myth or the legend of the, of the, of the Bulldog Man. And we got, uh, I, I, my dad knew the chief of police in town, so I got to get him come in and do an interview. Uh, and so we 
we did it kind of this weird format where we were, you know, taking quote unquote calls from from the public of people who had seen the Bulldog Man, which is all <laughs> fiction. It was, you know, all stuff that I'd written for the script. Uh, but we uh, we fictionalized this whole thing and treated it almost like it was a 2020 special about you know the legend of the of the, the Bulldog Man. Was he real or was he not real? And and all this. Oh. There's, and so part of it is towards the end of this of the program, we have someone calling in and saying, "You need to stop talking about all this other stuff because he's real. He's my son, and he's he knows this is going oh on." Oh my god, this is great. You've you you've got to stop doing this because you're you're going to make him angry, and so we just go ha 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 that's so funny blah 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 what, whatever you know these crazy people, uh, but uh, we said well this was great fun we hope you all enjoy your your Halloween and then we do a formal closeout for the show, uh-huh. so then we have uh, Mark who was supposed to be coming on as the DJ for the next section and so we go in and we do like five or ten minutes into his show. Uh, but while he's talking, he keeps on talking about, I'm hearing something really weird going on. Sound, I, I heard a sound that sounds like broken glass. <laughs> and and I, I wonder what that was. And so after a couple of seconds, you hear him shout, and then we shut the transmitter down. <laughs> <laughs> now, so you're, you're literally playing your own version of, of the War of the Worlds going we on. Did. We did. We did. And so, <laughs> so we, we shut off the transmitter for 10 minutes, uh, which was highly illegal. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we had people freaking out and calling us or whatever. Are you guys okay? And we're saying, no, it's all right. It was just a show, you know, uh, and whatever. Oh. So again, it was not like we didn't have a flood of people. We didn't, you know, cause the kind of panic that, that, that was caused by the, uh, the, the uh, War of the Worlds program. But we had a handful of people you know, go, what the hell just happened? Because, you know, again, we did the whole thing of closing out the show and, and you know, pretending like we were going into normal programming, just like they had done in War of the Worlds. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, uh, but anyway, that was fun. Um, but that gave us our first taste at doing audio drama. And so that was not technically part of the show that we would ultimately create. Uh, called Uncharted Regions, but that is what basically was my first toe into audio drama. And uh, but the, the the great thing about that process was is that it you know taught me something about you know producing and working with audio. It taught me about writing for the format. And uh, we we followed up in Christmas. Um, Ron wrote a piece called Silent Night, uh, which was not really. A weird tales kind of thing, but but right. you're starting to toe into that that sort of region of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, then after that, we just said we just kind of said, hey, let's let's do this on uh, a you know they weren't going to give us a time slot where we could just every week do this. Right. Uh, but, but we talked to the program director and they said, hey, if you want to occasionally do some more stuff like this, you know, we're totally fine with it because again, they don't care, <laughs> you know. But occasionally. <laughs> will say like here's a time slot where nothing else much is going on so you can drop this in there if you want and so we then began the process over the next couple of years and this would be like a, every couple of months we you know uh, uh, we might do a new episode or uh, and stuff and so the the next episode after silent night was the first official uncharted regions episode um, and that was called calls waiting and um, uh, 
this was all, and of course, part of the reason we got interested in all of this stuff was that at the rate, around the same time that we were doing this, of course, the early 80s was just kind of an odd period that is not, people don't tend to look at it uh, this way, but uh, this was actually kind of a golden period for radio drama, sort of a second era of, of, of radio drama, because uh, in the this early time period is whenever the Lord of the Rings uh, audio oh, drops. Right. The Hobbit drops. Uh, the uh, Star Wars audio drama drops in this time period. Uh, and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And uh, so oh, wow. the thing that I was personally the most attracted to because uh, being a writer and, and you know, in junior high, particularly in high school, was Ray Bradbury. Oh, yeah. um, and so there was a fantastic audio drama series that that uh, uh, that came in the early '80s called Bradbury. Some students up there, and it ended up winning the Peabody Anna, I believe, who was the producer for that particular series. Um, but really great production, uh, great music, and those are the things that honestly, whenever I heard those, I got really excited about the idea of telling stories with audio, telling stories yeah. uh, just with dialogue and sound effects and music. Uh, and so that was my guiding star whenever we started, uh, kicked off the first sort of iteration of Uncharted Regions, is uh, looking at Ray Bradbury and say, let's tell those kind of stories. Uh, and, but, you know, so, and, and obviously, obviously Twilight Zone is a huge influence uh, for what we were doing. Sure. Oh, uh, yeah. but, but that's, uh, but, you know, of course, I, I, I'm a child of, you know, like, you know, I'm the same age as Star Trek, right? Yep. Uh, so, so I was growing up uh, under Star Trek and Star Wars and uh, Twilight Zone and uh, all of this kind of stuff and, and all the all the classic science fiction stuff that happened in the '70s. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of uh, very deep emotional kinds of science fiction. Uh, obviously, we yeah. had a lot of blowing things up science fiction too that was coming down the pike. Uh, Star Wars kind of changed the whole whole tra uh, track of things there. Uh, but I, I was very much interested in, in telling deep emotional stories. Um, and so, so that was sort of how Uncharted Regions... Um, <coughs> Sorry. And so it was, you know, my buddy and my friends, you know, uh, periodically producing these things. Uh, between 1984 and uh, 1989. Um, so during that period, there were two episodes that we wrote and we had basically kind of sitting on the runway to be produced, but uh, one was called Haven and another one was called mm -hmm. uh, Someday Over You. And so uh, we had people, uh, so for Haven, we actually had uh, the, the cast come in. We had it recorded. These are was the, Haven was the first time we had a at least semi pro cast involved. Before that, it was like me and my friends uh, right, and you know, right. whoever we could grab to come in and do this kind of thing. But when it, with Haven, we took it up a next notch. We went to the local uh, junior college. We held auditions, and uh, so with Haven, we recorded it. Uh, but but we. Everything was sitting on a DAT, but there were some. There were still some parts uh, for it that uh, I still needed to get people for, but we just never got around to, to finishing up and finding those people. And so, 
uh, it unfortunately never got finished produced. And so that original recording of at least the main dialogue is still sitting on a DAT tape somewhere in my mother's house in Oklahoma. Oh, wow. Um, and so um, uh, I just would have to find that, uh, A, first I had to un unearth the tape. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and the second thing is I had to find a DAT player uh, because those, they don't, really use those anymore they're, they're still you can still find them on ebay and such but yeah. uh then another episode called someday over you was written we cast it but we never even got down to the point where it was on tape yet so anyway um so meanwhile while all this stuff is going on i've gone to the university of oklahoma i got a degree in radio television and film production which was greatly aided, aided by the fact that by the time i got into the university and I was taking classes, I'd already been working in radio for a couple of years. And yeah. so, and I had my own recording rig in my house. Oh, and nice. so, so, you know, a lot of people have, would have to, you know, schedule time to go in and, and schedule time to go into the lab up there so they could record stuff. Well, I'm sitting in my bedroom. Oh, that's <laughs> and, awesome. And, and I'm recording all, uh, you know, so I've got plenty of time to do this. And I've got a little um, cassette tape, multi-track machine and so I, I recorded all of my stuff for them on on that cassette tape as we did for a couple of the episodes of uncharted regions um but um so i so i come out of out of ktrw or i come out of out of ou and i've, I've got my my degree that basically says you know how to do what you already know how to do because you've been doing it radio <laughs> for uh, you know, I just I can sort of consider that is is we're just formalizing. You know, just certified now. <laughs> yeah, I'm just certified. There's a piece of paper that says you know how to do what you know how to do. Um, so I got out of OU. I was uh, fully expecting that I was going to uh, go into a career in probably news radio. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, again, I grew up in Oklahoma. My expectation, you know, my my idea back in the day is, is I was interested in film. I was right. inter interested in, in things like that. But my social, my uh, assumption with film was is that well, if you want to work in film, you've got to know somebody in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, or I, live I, there. Yeah, or live there. And it's just like I had no interest in moving to Hollywood because you know, I you know, I, I I believe about Hollywood what I see on television. Right. And right. so I'm like, I see, I don't see anything that really just draws me to live there. Uh, and so I, 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 I'm, I'm somebody who my heart belongs to. I should have been born in England. You know, that's, that's why mm -hmm. I, I, I want to live in a castle on, on the coast of some Welsh coast or something with big waves crashing and it's raining all the time. That's what makes me happy. Oh my uh, God, you're a kindred spirit with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, and my brother and I visited whenever I was about 16, but that's, that's a whole other crazy, insane story. But, um, but, uh, but that's, that's where sort of my heart. So I look at, at, at Southern California and it's sunshine and beaches and I, I this is just not my scene. Um, but, but like I said, so my expectation was, is I got my, my degree in radio, television, and film production. And I figured, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work in radio. I'm going to be a radio news guy. Uh, because mm -hmm. I had, when I, I was in high school, I was, I was uh, in charge of the high school magazine. I worked for the yearbook. I did all that stuff. Uh, my journalism teacher, she was sort of my mentor. And she promoted me even when I didn't know she was promoting me. And so occasionally I'd get 
stuff at the high school where, oh, you won this award. And I go, I didn't apply for an award. And, <laughs> and it was just you know, her basically taking my, my materials and sending it out to the state, you know, contest. And so I go, That's awesome. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, Laura Schaub, I, I love her to death. We called her mom Schaub. Uh, she was the most amazing lady uh, in the world. I love her to death. Uh, and uh, she, she, she's a huge reason why I'm a writer. Um, but, um, anyhow, so I get out of OU and I'm planning on trying to find a gig, uh, working in the, the radio industry, uh, or in, in, uh, working as either a DJ or in radio news. And I'm looking around and of course it's, uh, uh, but at first I go back to Tulsa, uh, with my parents cause mm. I don't have, I don't have a gig. And so I need, you know, I'm going to stay with them for a while until I can pick up a job. And uh, I work for a little while at a direct mail place in Tulsa, and I I hated that job. It was the worst. <laughs> it was it was it was just like and the thing about it was the person who. Uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, while I'm working at the direct mail place, I get a, a phone call uh, from a good buddy of mine named Ken Mayfield. Kenneth Mayfield. Now Ken and I went to junior high together. Ken was an amazing, great artist, and he went to work for Task Force Games. Okay. Uh, Task Force Games were the maker of a game called Starfleet Battles. Which, oh, yes. Yeah, and so, so, if you Star Trek, this was basically a strategic game that let you go with you know, starships head-to-head. -head. Uh, it was also, of course, uh, I, I, as much as I loved it for the sort of idea of we're basically f fighting starships against each other, uh, this could also be incredibly tedious because the usual game was about eight hours. I was going to say, it took forever. It took forever. And, and there was so much counting. And, and it was basically, we always we sometimes would call it accounting wars because you would sit down <laughs> and you're saying, okay, this is how much power I have to, to, uh, to give to the phasers and to whatever. And so there was lots of math and other stuff that was just, it did not exactly play to the fantasy of being a starship captain that on the Pope. <laughs> So, anyway, but Task Force Games were the publishers of Starfleet Battles. And so, uh, Ken had actually done some of the covers for some of their modules uh, uh, and some other things for them. Well, Task Force Games got purchased by a company called New World Computing. Oh, um, New World Computing were the publishers, the makers behind the everyone knows it, the Might and Magic, Might and Magic, mm -hmm. uh, the, <laughs> the classic role playing system, uh, Might and Magic. And so Ken had gone to work for them and and became the lead artist at New World Computing. And had I was say that name sounded familiar to me. I was yes. trying to yes pin it down. And so, 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 so Kenny and I have known each other for, for years. We were in high school, or we were in junior high together first. And then at the high school, we formed the first science fiction club at our, at our high school called OVNI. Uh, and so, you know, we've known each other for a really long time. And then when our, I went to college, you know, he and I would, would hang out. Um, uh, he was a stud. He had all his girlfriends. We would go to bars, and he would basically, we'd go in, and he'd stand there. There'd be a big, long line of guys, a uh, long a line of girls uh, standing in line to talk to him, and I'm just sitting off the end and going, okay, well, if any, <laughs> if any of your cast-offs want to talk to me, I'm fine with that. Chair, okay? So, um, but anyway, so Ken calls me up, and uh, uh, so uh, I was in, I was, I was in Ken and, and his wife's uh, wedding as well. So, uh -huh. um, so he calls me up after he's moved out to uh, uh, what the time uh, they were in uh, 
Woodland Hills, mm -hmm. and uh, they just moved from Van Nuys. And uh, so he says, well, there's a position currently open at New World, and they're looking for someone to be an artist. Uh, so we need someone who will help us with uh, doing the art for the, the game. And I said, well, okay. So he'd spent some time teaching me how to do some kind of space art. And so I knew how to use an airbrush and I could do planets and nebula and, and crap like that that doesn't actually require talent. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, because that stuff is easy. Um, but whenever you actually start having to like draw things that look like things, it's like, okay, well, I, I could draw you a person, but they're going to look like more like a swamp creature than a human being. And, <laughs> and uh, if you want something that actually is going to look like anything, I can do it, but it will take me, what might take you a week will take me three months. And as, as flattered as I am that you are willing to basically bring me out and have me do this, and I'd love to come out there and just hang out with you and work with you, uh, what's ultimately going to happen is they're going to fire me and they're going to fire you. Um, <laughs> uh, just because it's going to make you look bad, and I don't want to do that. Uh, as, as much as I'm excited about the idea of coming out and working for a game company, that sounds really cool. You know, I've seen the movie, you know, War Games, fell right. in love with Ali Sheedy, and I said, at any cost, I, I mean, who to... didn't? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I want to be David Lightman so I can date Ali Sheedy, right? <laughs> um, and so, but yeah, so I'd, I'd gone out, I had, I had a, you know, my, my parents bought me an Atari 400 computer, so that was back whenever it didn't even have keys, it had its membrane with little, <sighs> it had all the letters on it, and so you're sitting there trying to poke the letters, and of course you have to basically have to take a chisel and a hammer to get oh, it to yeah. the keystrokes. Uh, but I learned how to program using the Atari 400, and I had the little manuals about how to peek and poke and do assembly language and all that other stuff. I built my own version of Defender, which was the worst uh, version of Defender that you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> um, um, so, but if I you did that in assembler, that's still impressive. <laughs> uh, oh well, actually, actually, the that that was that was using peaks and pokes and that kind of stuff. I I I, I read assembly language, but I said, oh my god, I'm I would probably be better off trying to learn Klingon than this. That was a long <laughs> class in college. Yeah, uh, that is a very long class in college, and and so. <laughs> Uh, of course, this is pre-C or whatever, so this is sort of basic and basic plus and, and yep. that kind of crap. Um, so anyway, I, I had done some of that stuff, but at the end of the day, I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a storyteller, I'm a designer. I, I, so I have, have artistic inclinations. Being a programmer is not in my soul. I can, <laughs> I can do it, but it is with, with great pain and agony. Um, you're alike. That is so uh, funny. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so he's saying, okay, well, we, uh, so if you don't want to take the, the art position, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. I'm sorry, guys. I, I, no, I really, no, please, great. please, great. This is awesome. I am, I'm honestly like a jackrabbit on crack. So, so right. <laughs> we are, like I said, we're, we're super, like super chill. Like I, this, I'm having a blast. Okay, good, good. Well, so. <laughs> So anyway, so we, so I said, thank you, but no thank you, because like I said, I think it sounds amazing, uh, but I just don't think it's a good idea at the time. Right. Um, so I go back to my drudgery at the, at the um, mail house. Oh. Um, and so then about two or three months later, I get another phone call from Ken. He says, okay, 
And he says, so here's the deal, is that uh, we have a fellow here uh, that is currently on vacation. Uh, he does not know whenever he gets back from vacation, he's no longer going to have a job. Um, and so we need a, basically we need someone who will be a writer 24-7 on salary, writing science fiction and fantasy. Do you want oh to do Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, you know, so you know you, you benefits and all of the nice stuff. Do you want to move to California and do this job? And I said, okay. Uh, what do you need me to do? To, I, I have no idea how to apply for a game design job or whatever. Right. And they said, well, we just need a writing sample that you can send to us. Now, what do mm -hmm. I have sitting on off to the side as a writing sample? I have a stack of audio drama scripts. Oh, awesome. Um, and of course, also, you know, like most people my age, you know, I had done uh, quite a bit of, of role-playing stuff myself, and so I played Dungeons and Dragons on the weekends. My, my big passion at the time uh, was Call of Cthulhu. Uh, that, oh, yes! That is, oh, nice. You know, Call of Cthulhu is and always will be my favorite role-playing system. Uh, it's so fun. It's it's more about storytelling than it is about obscure rules. Like I said, I, I used to talk uh, harass people about this. Is yes, the great thing about D and D is like, okay, all right, we're in the situation now. I need to find the half elf spilled a uh, lantern on a stairwell table um, uh, uh, to decide whatever's going to happen. Um, but um, Anyway, so he says, do you want to come out and, and interview for this? And I said, okay. So, so I go out and I grab my Uncharted Regions uh, scripts and I tuck them in an envelope along with, uh, even though I wasn't applying for an art job, I took some, of, some pictures of my, my pictures I had done with an airbrush. I took those in there and some of my D&D um, campaign or the Call of Cthulhu uh, materials and I stuffed them yeah. in there and I stuck them all up in an envelope and I sent it off. And so... Uh, a couple of days after they got it, uh, they just called me up and say, hey, do you want to fly out for an interview? So, okay. <laughs> sure. Hell yeah. Okay, so I go out there, and so um, I'm I'm supposed to meet with John Van Hannigan, who, of course, is the yep. creator of Modern Magic and uh, the head of the company. And so we, uh, so we go out there, and I'm having a great time because, you know, I'm staying with, with Ken and, and his wife, Angie. Uh, and we, we uh, I, I, I get a chance to meet the boss, and so... I'm sitting down with JVC and, and I'm, I'm extremely nervous and I don't know oh, why. Yeah. And it's so funny because JVC is the most unexcitable guy that you could ever possibly imagine. You oh, can, really? Yeah, it's just like you say, JVC, you know, we all call him JVC. He's John Van Cannon, but we all call him JVC. Uh-huh. And say, JVC, I just took an ax and I just killed your entire family. Uh, and, and, <laughs> I've, I've left them in a pool of blood, uh, and they're now being eaten by wild dogs. And JVC's response would be something like, I'm really upset about that. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, with just the most placid look on his face or whatever. He was just <laughs> the most chill, mellow guy, because, you know, a lot of times he would go out before work, he'd go surfing. He, uh, in his spare time, whenever he wasn't making games, his his sideline was racing cars. And oh so he had God. a race car. And, of course, he drove, uh, you know, he would bring in his, his Boxster or whatever it was that he would bring in. Uh, and so, uh, so anyway, uh, I come in and I do this interview with JVC, and I'm really nervous through the whole thing or whatever, and I get to the end, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of fidgeting, and so I'm just like, 
so do you have an idea? You know, I just want to have kind of an idea about, you know, do you know when you might be making a decision? So I have an idea sort of what the, the time frame is. Just, oh, well, you're hired. <laughs> oh my god oh, man. and he said we just we just need you to meet you and and kind of you know uh, meet you face to face and see what you're like but ken says you're okay and your qualifications are certainly uh, great so so you know you're the only person in the company that has a degree <laughs> uh, and so uh so i said great and i said when do i start and i said when can you get here and and so uh, I said, oh, well, I'll go back home and pack up. And so uh, I was supposed to be back in two weeks. Um, wow. So I go back home and I uh, uh, get my uh, beat up 73 Mustang that my brother gave to me after he got uh, he uh, got married. And uh, uh, he'd given me his old 73. And this thing was a disaster. It could barely run. But Don't uh, tell me you drove that out to California. I did. I did. <laughs> uh, and so my, I also had my cousin following me because he had a, a, a single panel white van. And we put all of the important stuff in his van. <laughs> and then shit like like my you know my toiletries and just you know random clothes and stuff in my Mustang. And the idea was is if the Mustang dies along the way, we just leave it at the road. <laughs> Trip snowing between here and there. And so we went to Albuquerque and we we we're coming up through Albuquerque and it's holy crap. I hope we don't run into this from you know. But um, so the trip goes. Pretty well from so I'm driving down the road with this map and basically spread over the the <laughs> the, the <laughs> wheel, you know, looking at it. Saying, okay, where do we? Have, I mean, fortunately, it was a pretty easy trip because most of it is just straight down the forty. Yeah, and, say. Uh, and then it's it's not until you get to San Bernardino until the the, the trip gets weird. Um, but um, so the trip goes pretty well until we uh, we finally are pulling into uh, to. Uh, the Los Angeles metro area, and uh, so we've we've come down the 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 fifteen or or whatever it was it was the forty and then uh, for for you the ten I think we're off the ten or only at Los Angeles and of course I have this uh, scale is a new thing for me even though I came out on the plane and I interviewed it wasn't like I spent a lot of time driving around in Los Angeles and so right. I, Still don't have a sense of scale. Dallas at this point is the largest city I've ever been in. Well, take it back. I've been to London, but I hadn't driven around in it. Right. Uh, it's a different that, story when you're driving. It is a different story when you're driving. And Dallas had been the largest city I'd driven around in up to this point. So um, we get to Los Angeles. It is dark. And we, uh, so we're driving along and we're on the 101 freeway. And I see an exit off the 101 freeway where we're in Hollywood. And I see an exit for Ventura Boulevard. I said, oh, fantastic. That's the, I know that's the building where, or that's the, the street where my, uh, uh, where New World Computing's offices are. So if I can get to there, I'm pretty sure I can get from there to the apartment. <laughs> Uh, because I, I've I've rented a, a an apartment in the same building as Ken and Angie uh, had yeah. in our place simply because that was going to make it easier, you know, oh, easy yeah. and and they could recommend and so so they helped me get into that apartment complex by just you know giving a recommendation because that's the other thing is getting an apartment in Los Angeles anytime is difficult and so at least I had people who lived there who could vouch for me, right? So we um, we get to to, to LA uh, and we, uh, so I, I see the exit for Ventura Boulevard I said, okay we're gonna get off at Ventura Ventura 
So we get off the freeway, we roll down to the stoplight, and then this is the first time in miles and miles and miles that my food has not been on the gas. So I get to the uh, the, the the light there, and it's... Oh, no. <laughs> and, and I go, okay, this car is about to die on me. <laughs> and so this car, the only way that I can keep it functioning is by, when I'm sitting at the stoplight, to have one foot on the brake and the other one on the accelerator keep the engine from dying. Uh, <laughs> and so, anyway, so we, we proceed to head down Ventura Boulevard. Now, little country boy me does not understand that Ventura Boulevard is a street that goes through about 10 towns. I was about to say, which way did you go? <laughs> uh, it, it goes through about 10 towns before it actually... for a while. <laughs> yes, but so it goes through Hollywood and it goes through all of these other places way the hell before you actually get to Woodland Hills, which is where the office is. <laughs> so we're cruising down Ventura Boulevard for I don't know how hell long it was, but I'm fighting this thing at every stoplight. And of course, people are just giving us the craziest look. You know, they're looking over at me like, what kind of wacko are you? Because my, my, this Mustang this Mustang is just sputtering and sh- uh, shuddering. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm just, at this point, I am so nervous because my hands are just clenched to the steering wheel. Oh, yeah. I, I am just so nervous. And of course, the other thing too is that this is the era whenever the, the highway uh, so the, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but there were all these shootings that were going on. Yes. In LA, yeah, the highway shooter. Uh, the highway yeah. shooter. So this is that time frame, right? Oh, dear God. Okay. So <laughs> I'm, and of course, I, I, I'm saying folks that don't look like people from back home, right? And oh, so, my goodness. And so I'm terrified out of my mind. Okay. We might have just <laughs> hit a, a time limit with Craig, which is no problem. All right, Craig, okay. you keep recording. So, you've you've made it to New World Computing. Yes. Sir. Um, what uh, what was the first game that you worked on? So, uh, the first thing that I was assigned to work on at uh, New World was actually kind of a a, a odd thing. Uh, when I got there, they had developed their their used to be a pen and paper role playing game called Tunnels and Trolls. Yep. Um, that was, you know, another one of these. It was very similar to Dungeons and Dragons. There were there were a whole host of, in the late seventies, early eighties, nineties, there were a whole host of sort of competitors to Dungeons and Dragons. And Tunnels and Tra- uh, uh, Tunnels and Trolls was another one of them. It tended to skew towards comedy, <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and really sort of absurd kind of situations and things. Uh, but New World had. Uh, acquired the rights to develop a computer game version of Tunnels and Trolls. But they didn't develop it initially in-house. They had actually contracted with a company in Japan called, and this has no relation, but a company called StarCraft. Oh, wow. Um, And so StarCraft developed this Japanese version of the game. Uh, And so whenever I got to New World, uh, the, the Japanese version of the game had been done, and they needed to basically port it back to uh, to a PC format. Um, and so uh, whenever I got there, they handed me this phone book by stack of paper, which was all the dialogue in the game translated from Japanese into English. <laughs> and so they said... You have work cut out for you. 
And so they said, you need to translate this, you know, this text from from the sort of pidgin English into not only something that's understandable, but that actually has some flavor and flair to it. You know, and so this is also compelling as well as as, you know, uh, letting the player know what they need to do. Now, the problem is, is there is nothing that is actually currently running on a PC that I can you know, it's not like blocks of text are numbered and says this number goes with this window right. uh, or anything that I can sit down. So what they give me is a Japanese version of the game. Um, and uh, I, the one thing that I can kind of go by is I can see stats and I and uh, some other stuff. But otherwise, this is completely in Japanese. I do not wow. read or write or speak Japanese. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, so, uh, th uh, of course, nowadays, uh, if you're doing something like this, there would be a design document. It would say, here is this level. Here is what's supposed to happen in these levels. Yeah. Here is, and, and you would at least have some context in which various piece of pieces of dialogue will come up. But <clears throat> at this point, dial uh, design documents are not a thing that are standard standardized across the industry. And yeah. they are—they don't exist in, in at New World. And so I'm taking this phone book-sized wad of text and playing the game in Japanese, and then kind of taking these texts and kind of figuring out, okay, that has to do with this. And so I would get these oh, wonderful. Wow. Sen I'd get sentences like "sudden boat turn turtle." Uh, <laughs> and you know, which I would have to say, okay, suddenly the boat the boat turned over. Uh, oh wow! Uh, um, uh, and so there, there's just loads and loads and loads of stuff like this. And so I'm having to teach you, like, say, translate it first into something that makes sense, and then you know I'm supposed to take my magic prose uh, powers and turn this into readable uh, prose dialogue, uh, yeah, and pro yeah. prose and dialogue and stuff like that. So uh, I spent. So that's what I spend the first, I think, it's two months. I think whenever I'm at New World is is doing this trans translation. Uh, 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 job. Uh -huh. Now, so about the time I, I'm getting done with this, I'm in JBC's office, uh, and I'd gone in to ask him something, but he wasn't there. And so uh, I start to turn around. Of course, his office, you know, he has a lot of classic games, both, you know, pen and paper, but also computer games that are in his office. And I'm looking around, and I see there's a tunnels, a tunnels and trolls thing sitting on the, on the shelf. And I said, oh, this is kind of cool. Uh, uh, and so I pull it out and realize that here is the adventure from which the Japanese have adapted <laughs> their game. I have just basically rewritten this entire <laughs> thing that already exists on paper. And nobody... <laughs> oh, no. Um, and so it's, I, I'm a little freaked out by this because she's just like, holy crap, couldn't you have told that here between the two and said paste here and the series goes here. And, you know, uh, I, I could have created some, some bridging text and things for in the module, you know, which were never intended, you know, which were happy with that, that hint manual because I wrote it as if it was a tour guide, uh, a tour guide that you would buy to a, you know, real place. Uh, oh, that's cool! And, I loved hint books and, that did that. Uh, and so it was called Dreams of the Dragon. And um, mm -hmm. uh, so, anyway, that was my first kind of experience dealing with, uh, with my first gig at, at New World was doing this absurd sort of translation task. Um, 
But uh, you know, whenever I got done with that, uh, JVC says, "Okay, well, the next thing that needs to happen is we got, you know, Might and Magic one and two were out. They had King's Bounty done, but they needed uh, the manual written for King's Bounty. Mm -hmm. uh, so, of course, what uh, for your listeners, King's Bounty is the game that became Might and Magic Heroes." Yeah, um, I, I had that on Sega. Um, I loved it. Um, our Heroes of Might and Magic, I should say. So, so yeah. uh, uh, King's Bounty is, and so I guess, ironically, someone's making King's Bounty two now. Apparently, I've seen ads for oh, that. Sweet. Uh, so, uh, so presumably separate from from the Might and Heroes of Might and Magic stuff. But um, anyway, uh, so they said we're working on Might and Magic three. Uh, it's uh, in the pipeline, and so we need some. We need you know to uh, you to start working on the story for for that. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I started work on Might and Magic three, and of course uh, that was a uh, at the early stages. It was just basically what's the story, the overall storyline for this going to be about? And right. so uh, I, I pretty much came up with the whole idea of the crash thing, and there's a spaceship, and it, and it gets submerged, and uh, sort of the overall large plot line for what was going to happen. Uh, I, I worked with JVC on, uh, he was working on a new system for how uh, items and weapons were going to work. And so they would have these attributes. And so you would have, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and so I created a little random numbers generator just to kind of have it create different items to, just to see what it's going to look like, be like. And so uh, I think the, the most embarrassing thing is when it came up with a vibrating leather uh, uh uh, the vibrating leather buddy rod of aid. <laughs> 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 uh, actually, actually, they, they, uh, he called it AIDS at the time, not thinking about the disease. <laughs> <laughs> and so it had the vibrating leather buddy rod of AIDS. And so, um, uh, but, uh, but it was, the whole idea is, you know, you have a property, uh, you know, properties of, you know, here's a material, here is a, a property, here's, you know, and whatever. Uh, it's like a so, predecessor almost to, like, Diablo's loot system. Oh, like, yeah, like, exactly. It's exactly, it's, it's, it's definitely an early forerunner or something like that. And so oh, I can't take, awesome. I, I can't take credit for that system. But again, I, I created a, a random generator uh, just to kind of uh, fiddle with it and see what, how it was going to work. And so, sure. uh, uh, it would populate chests and and crap like that. So, uh, but so meanwhile, um, so I as I told you before, is that New World had acquired the rights for a ta uh, for, or basically they bought Task Force Games, uh -huh. and, and they were wanted to develop Starfleet Battles as a computer game. Uh, but whenever they started kind of developing the idea, they said, well, we, maybe we have something a little more elaborate where we're going to fly around in space and we have all our space battles. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, we're looking at the time, we're looking at star control and we're looking at some of these other things that had yeah. the systems that were similar to what we wanted to do uh, with that. Um, but obviously using rules that are much clo more closely associated with... Uh, uh, with how Starfleet Battles handled things. But the thing about it was is that we had the rights to Starfleet Battles, but we did not have the rights to Star Trek. I was just about to ask, yeah. So it's not like we could go out and say, this is Federation, this is, you know, the, the rights to task uh, for Starfleet Battles is very specific to the game. Yeah. 
you know, and so to a pen and paper, whatever, getting into the kind of game we were working on, we didn't really have the rights to say, this is a Starfleet vessel, this is whatever. So we were going to take the mechanics of Starfleet battles, that was going to be how ship space-to-space combat was going to work, uh, mm-hmm. uh, ship-to-ship combat was going to work. Uh, but uh, they're talking about the ideas, maybe we would like have them beam down and they would do missions and everything else like that. And so... Uh, I was really excited and intrigued about this idea because, again, I grew up, I was the biggest Star Trek fan in the world uh, growing up. Uh, I, I'm start, the original Star Trek series was hugely influential to me mm-hmm. um, and still is. Um, and I really, really wanted it to, uh, to be sort of uh, driving how, uh, how the storyline developed with that. And so, but the thing that it was is I had the Might Magic uh, game that was there, Might Magic 3, uh, and then Planet's Edge, and I said, I'm, I'm a brand new starting writer. Uh, I do not want to try to have to tackle both of these simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, and, and also Might and Magic, that's the flagship and all this other stuff. And I said, so JVC was going to be doing all, the, all of the design for uh, Might and Magic anyway. You know, but, so he would basically draw maps, and then he would hand it off to other people to implement um, and so I, I'm just looking at this other stuff. I said, I don't, you know, Might Magic doesn't really need a, me as a designer. And uh, as, as much as, as I, I played like one of the Might and Magic games before I came out, but honestly, mm-hmm. I was a lot more familiar. The game that I'd actually spent some time playing with, and, and it wasn't even my machine, but I'd hang out with a buddy of mine who owned it was the fa- uh, not Fairy Tale, but um, uh, Bard's Tale. Oh yeah, uh, and so 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 my buddy owns uh, Bard's Tale, and so I would come over. And our Dungeons and Dra- Dragons group would actually sit around and sort of group play uh, Bard's Tale. Yep. Uh, and so so even though Might and Magic was a different thing, it's they're similar enough. You know, if you played Bard's Tale, you understood Might and Magic and vice versa. It's it's you know that sort of two uh, D and a half uh, uh, engine that they had for for doing that kind of stuff. But anyway, I said it's. it's Mind Magic Three would be cool, but I, I I would really like to just go over and work uh, to co- concentrate full time on Planet's Edge. So I said, so why don't I get you another writer for Mind Magic Three, mm-hmm. uh, and I can switch to focusing full time on on Planet's Edge. And so what I did is I picked up my phone and I called up Ron Bollinger, who was the guy I started Uncharted Regions with. Oh wow! Um, and so, uh, so it was just kind of the same kind of thing. Is you know, Ron, you know, uh, sent some writing samples, and we brought him out. And then Ron was my my roommate uh, the whole time I was living in in Los Angeles after after he moved out. Uh, and so he and I split an apartment. Uh, I we initially had a one one uh, bedroom apartment and I had this crazy bed that I'd swapped my car for after it died uh, <laughs> that somebody built himself and, and I called it the altar because it, it, it sat off the ground about four and a half feet off the ground uh, <laughs> and it had this huge space underneath it uh, 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 so we had this 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 kind of it was kind of ridiculous. Ron slept underneath my bed <laughs> and so he was sort of the monster that lived under my bed. And so that was our, our first apartment there at, at the Fortress Fairmont. And so away for about six months. And then after that, um, the guy who had previously owned and run Task Force Games 
uh, moved out of an apartment which was on the third floor, and it was a two-bedroom apartment, and so we took over his place. Oh, and wow. so Ron got his own place, and so uh, so we 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 had the same apartment as as where Task Force Games was based for a while. But anyway, that's a wild um, coincidence. Uh, and well, yeah, I mean, it's just all these kind of you know this weird stuff. The whole new world uh, age was kind of crazy. But um, anyway, so uh, I got Ron to come out, and Ron took over writing for Might and Magic Three. Now, of course, Ron and I's desks were right next to each other, and with both Might and Magic Three and Planet's Edge, uh, uh, we actually both wrote on each other's games whenever uh-huh. the because every once in a while they go, I'm stuck, whatever. We would write on each other's games. We didn't give each other credit on each other's games because we both want to. Uh, we we sort of felt like each of us wanted to say, I own this one and you own this yeah. one. And I so, totally get that. but, but, uh, because you know, we're both brand new, you know, mm-hmm. and so, uh, we just wanted it to sort of be our own thing. But that said, is, is we wrote stuff for each other uh, on, on each other's titles. Uh, if you uh, are playing Might and Magic 3 and you're digging through stuff, there's a whole storyline about Florida Hall the Mad. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, uh, that's my plot line. Uh, um, I remember that. That's and, cool. And so, of course, it's just an anagram of my name. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and so uh, a lot of the, the, there's a lot of music jokes that, of course, you know, that was a mind magic thing. There are a lot of puns. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And so, so a lot of that came from Ron and I sitting at our desks or whatever. And, of course, I, had, I was really huge into classic rock. Or whatever mm-hmm. so that was my playlist. Uh, Ron was a bohemian. He wanted to be uh, Jack Kerouac, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, and so uh, and of course the thing about it is, is in the long run, I think it's actually a really good thing that Ron came in to take over Might and Magic Three because I think that the storylines for both Might and Magic, you know, because uh, Might and Magic Three, as, as well as the Dark Side of Zine yeah. uh, oh, duology, yeah. those were all Ron. Um, and, uh, the thing about Ron is the fact that he was not, he had not read Tolkien. He didn't care to read Tolkien. He was not interested in it. Um, and so Ron was definitely on a path of, you know, cause he'd sort of say, well, I've got these people living out in the desert. I said, no, no, and whatever. But in the long run, I really blast subverted rope that was out there partially because he just didn't know that's awesome. um, I would tell him things, you know, we would have <laughs> conversations about stuff, uh, but Ron did his own thing. And so I was always very happy that Ron did what he did. Um, because I think that honestly, a lot of the more unique twists and things that happened in, uh, in three and four and five are all thanks to Ron being a nonconformist and that's not, awesome. you know, not being a hardcore geek. He basically brought in his own view and his own kind of approach to doing stuff. And I think that those three games are the better for having that, that having been true. And it, um, probably again, the most unique uh, in the series. And uh, uh, that trilogy would be my favorite in that series uh, by far. It, it, and that, that's one of the things like, cause I was the, the Tolkien geek growing up and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, as soon as I got to, to like parts like that, I'm like dwarves in the desert. Yeah, I'm down with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and uh, I, I that was just like I said, and like I said, it, it, for first it kind of drove me a little crazy uh, <laughs> because you know I, I definitely was the person that that knew the fantasy tropes and the, and the sci-fi tropes, but after a while I just kind of let go and all other stuff. And I said he's doing the right thing. He's going off in this right direction, and he's putting his own stamp on it. And yeah. 
in the long run, it was absolutely the right decision. And, and I'm, I'm so happy that, that I managed to talk him into doing that. Um, but um, anyway, so I took off on, on Planet's Edge. And of course, we said, so in space, it's going to be um, uh, Eric Hyman, who was the programmer on it. Uh, mm -hmm. He's the one that implemented all of the space stuff. That was okay. his, you know, and so he was a huge, you know, thing, uh, fan of Wing Commander. And so, uh, so he's like playing Wing Commander uh, pretty much all the time when he was not working on the game. He was, he was playing on Wing Commander, and sometimes he should have been playing working on the game when he was playing Wing Commander. <laughs> um, but um, uh, so it was really the, the, the core of that team was myself, Eric Hyman, and Kenneth Mayfield. Um, and Ken was somebody who was also, you know, uh, he, he was a huge... Uh, Starfleet Battles player, you know, was into that. Uh, so uh, we also had, uh, of course, whenever they bought the company, probably three or four of the top-ranked players of Starfleet Battles were in our company. Oh, wow. Um, so these were not people who just basically acquired the company for the hell of it. These were the people who were the best at playing it. And so some nights, you know, after closing hours, there would be a Starfleet Battles tournament going on in the conference room. Uh, oh, and these would go on. And, of course, it was just crazy because if you wanted to learn how to play that game, you'd sit down and just sit back and watch, you know, because uh, there was, uh, uh, there was uh, Ron... Um, uh, not, not my, my friend, my, not my buddy Ron, but there was another Ron. There was, cause there was big Ron and there's little Ron. B big Ron was, uh, <laughs> was the vice principal of the company. And I, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name now. Spitzer. Ron Spitzer. Okay. Uh, Ron Spitzer uh, uh, and all these folks would come in. They have these, these major Starfleet battles campaigns going on. And uh, uh, that was a... Uh, like I say, it was kind of fascinating because you watch them have these, these, wow, that's a tactic I never would have thought of before. But I mean, they had just hours and hours and hours and hours of, of, of tactics under the belt from having played these games. Um, so anyway, Eric Hyman, who was the programmer, he handled all of the programming and cr basically trying to integrate as many of the Starfleet battles rules into the space combat as, as was possible. Uh, he also created the, you know, sort of resource uh, system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, whenever you're upgrading your ship, you know, you have to have this many metals and, and all that kind of stuff. That was all all Eric. And so, once you beamed down, that was my domain. Um, <laughs> and so, my concept was, is that you fly around in space and you're having space battles and that's, that's Starfleet battles, but the moment you beam down, it's, it's every planet is an episode of Star Trek. Oh, um, wow. And so, uh, and so, uh, just in terms of, of sort of the feel of everything. And so, it, every every planet was a self-contained sort of episode. Uh, and so, beginning, middle, end, and there was a whole plot line that would happen on each planet. Um, then, the uh, the game was divided up into a number of stars in sort of sectors. Yeah. Uh, each sector had a storyline that controlled what was going on in the events of all that sector. And then there was an, another plot line that, that united all the sectors together. So there's three le levels of storytelling that was going on. Wow. Um, and so uh, this was all plotted. I, I, we had this huge, it was my first chance of really working with a gigantic whiteboard in the conference room. <laughs> And so I would be in there plotting the stuff out and, you know, writing out the plot lines. And uh, it was kind of fun because people would drift in and look at stuff and just kind of, you know, uh, be kind of amazed by all, all the crazy stuff that I was doing with stuff. But um, 
but the it, the the important thing about Planet's Edge is that it is the forerunner of another game we'll, we'll be discussing shortly. In terms okay. of, there was a great deal of on-screen text uh, in <laughs> in Planet's Edge, uh, and uh, a lot, certainly a lot more than there was in Might and Magic. Uh, and it, the interesting thing was, is you know, I was having to solve problems by you would have a uh, you would have your uh, uh, your party that was like, adventuring around. And you could change different party members to do different things based on their skills and based on what equipment they're carrying. Uh, and of course, with with Planet's Edge, it was all about the stuff you carried. You were not. Uh, it wasn't D and D where this is. You have a set of stats. Um, this is all based on you are a you are simply he who bear, bears this stuff. And right. so this gun has this this kind of damage, and this armor has this kind of reflectivity, and there's nothing that's baked into your character uh, itself. Or there's very little, actually. There may have been some. Now that I'm thinking about it, there might have been some base level stuff, but it's not like you're leveling up your character. Right. Um, right. And, the stats stayed relatively the same. I, I did some yeah. reading on that, unless you like, clone them or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well you, you, you cloned them, and, and so uh, at, basically after they died, then you you get the clone, but the clone was sort of degraded, was the idea. Uh, okay. um, but um, uh, so this was partially from Call of Cthulhu. Uh, where in Call of Cthulhu, you're not somebody, your sanity is going down. Right. And you might you might gain a few points in one stat or the other, but for the most part, your stats are fairly static. And you don't you don't become living gods in Call of Cthulhu. No, no. Which is something that I actually always preferred. I kind of hate, uh, hate it about D&D is the fact that I'm, you know, 15th level, and it's just like I, I'm fighting, you know, Anubis. You know, yeah, you're just mowing uh, through stuff. Too. You're just you're just plowing through people, and it's just I kind of hated that because it's like there's uh, not as much risk on the line, and I, I like the fact that with Call of Cthulhu, you're always in danger of dying, <laughs> or, or going batshit crazy. Uh, I mean, that was the the real thing about Cthulhu is the fact that that I love the fact that the most educated people in on the party or the people who have had the most experience are the one ones that are probably your biggest deficit. Yeah, they're the ones that are going to go nuts first. They're going to go crazy and maybe kill the rest of the party. Uh, oh. um, and so, uh, so some of the the approach to, to how we we did the the gear was based on Call of Cthulhu. Also, another gigantic influence on the systems uh, that we implemented was Traveler, uh, the the pen and paper role playing uh, sci fi game Traveler. Okay. Um, and so that was another big influence on Planet's Edge. And so we we really took Star Trek, Starfleet Battles, Traveler, and Call of Cthulhu and mixed it in a big, big vat, and that became Planet's Edge. Um, yeah. And uh, Planet's Edge, uh, that was a, a it was an interesting kind of a process um, uh, because, like, see, Eric. Uh, Eric was a programmer, and we didn't really have a lot of let's sit down and talk about how stuff was going to happen. We were all kind of in our own little silos. Okay. Uh, so I would, would drop levels, and uh, I would go and drop them on Eric's desk, and then he would, uh, uh, or actually, I would give them to Ken, and Ken would start creating all the tiles uh, that would form, you know, all the different areas, and then uh, then Eric would go in and do, you know, black box. Box, you know, uh, programming sorcery to make things work, mm-hmm. um, and so, uh, of course, we did have other artists that were involved with the, the project. Uh, 
uh, that would, uh, so eventually we had John Gwynn, we had uh, Bonnie Hemsaf, uh, who was an artist. We, we sadly just lost uh, Bonnie uh, just a couple of months back. Um, oh, sorry to and, hear um, well, she was, she was a very sweet lady, uh, uh, but she, uh, she had cancer. And so she, we lost her a couple of months, months ago. Uh, but, uh, we had Lewis Johnson who was, who was primarily involved with might and magic, but he also did some stuff for, for planet's edge. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, some fun trivia about planet's edge. So of course there were the, the four main characters that were through the whole thing, the, 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 the crew of, of the Ulysses. Um, and uh, the the captain is uh, basically John Van Kanigam's face. I was going to uh, say, okay. Uh, 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 so Katja is uh, Angie Mayfield, so Ken's wife. Um, uh, uh, Osai is uh, is John Gwynn's wife, um, and Nelson uh, was uh, was uh, uh, one of our artists. Uh, that was uh, his his face, and so all of their oh, wow. faces. And so, uh, if you play any of the Might and Magic games, this was just sort of a new world thing. Is our faces all show up at some point in some of those games? Oh, that's uh, awesome! Yeah. So my head is in in some of the Might and Magic. I think in the later ones, like four or five, I think maybe. Um, but um, uh, but John and I, you know, John is listed in the credits for Planet's Edge. John would basically rubber stamp things. Uh huh. Uh, but, uh, but as far as Planet's Edge goes, it was really Eric and I who did all the design, uh, oh, for, wow. for it. I mean, John is the one who basically sort of gave us, here's the mission, you know, uh, uh, but, uh, but uh, again, there was, there was no design document for this. And so a lot of this was, you know, I dropped stuff on Eric's, uh, Eric's list. Now, Eric and I had kind of a big fight in the middle of Planet's Edge, uh, because at one point... I'd been giving him stuff, and he was busy, busy playing Wing Commander. <laughs> uh, and so he had, like, a couple of weeks' worth of stuff that I put on his table, and we had a meeting in JVC. We all were having a group meeting just kind of talk about, you know, where are various things. And and um, uh, Eric kind of threw me under the bus. He said, oh, well, I got the stuff, and I can't use any of the stuff that, that you gave me. I said, I've been dropping this stuff on your desk every day for weeks, and you haven't said anything to me. Um, yeah. And this was anyway. Uh, it, it was it was one of those things that that really got on my craw, and so Eric and I butted heads some. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, towards the end of the project, uh, we weren't really speaking to each other. <laughs> um, and so um, another important person that I need to talk about here, though, is someone who came in between the development of Might and Magic Three and Planet's Edge. And uh, he was brought in from the uh, uh, recently uh, from um, uh, Cinemaware, which oh, is also okay. where we got where, was where, where we got Lewis Johnson from, where we got John Gwynn, who was like I said one of our illustrators uh, yep. for, uh, and uh, and we got John Cutter. Uh, oh, and, okay. And so I see John, where we're going. John Cutter arrived at New World to be a producer uh, to work on both Might and Magic Three and on Planet's Edge. Uh, and, uh, John and I became friends really, really fast. Uh, uh, he, uh, uh, he liked to read stuff. He particularly really liked a lot of this text and the story and stuff I was developing for Planet's Edge. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, we had a lot of kind of discussions about stuff that was going on and, uh, you know, we, 
uh, we really bonded really quickly. And, and he really became my real game design mentor because even though John Van Canningham, like I say, he was fabulous. I, I appreciate the opportunity he gave me and giving me the job and just sort of guiding how things happened with, with everything else. It was really Cutter who basically said, let me teach you how to design games because you know john had developed all this great stuff at oh yeah uh, at, at cinemaware and again you know he did uh, uh wings which i think is probably still one, one of my favorite games of all time yeah wings wings was a fabulous game he did uh it wasn't the rocketeer but it was something like rocketeer uh the name of it or that was there um, that might he have did. actually well no it wasn't rocketeer you're right uh, um i can't remember what it, the name of it was but he did uh he was a producer on, I think, uh, it was either King of Chicago or uh, maybe it was Defender of the Crown. That's a um, favorite. And, um, and I think that he might have, uh, and, I, and whenever he was at New World, we did a, we didn't do, do the original game, but we did a port of, it came from the desert. Oh yes, uh, and so we did, we did the Amiga port of that, I think. And so John, I think, was also producer for that. That's the game. That's um, the version I played too. Um. And so, uh, anyway, so John and I would spend a lot of time hanging out. So, uh, at one point, John got a, uh, a phone call from Dynamics, uh, which was a company up in Eugene, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And they were, uh, had, I, I, I think, not too, early, not too uh, much earlier than that, had been purchased by another game company that people would recognize called Sierra Online. Um, and so, uh, so I, I don't remember exactly how it happened. I think that, that John Cutter and, and JVC, I, I think Cutter just wanted opportunities to do more. He didn't really mm -hmm. feel like they were giving him the reins to do as much as he wanted. And so, uh, he got the, uh, a call from Dynamics and they wanted, uh, John. So he, uh, he took the job up in Dynamics, but before mm -hmm. he left, I said, I would really like to come and work with you, yeah. you know? And I said, so if there's anything, uh, if anything comes up and a job opens up, please give me a call because I'd really, really like to develop a game with you from, from the beginning. Cause John was coming after things were sort of already rolling. Uh, yeah. for, for stuff. And I said, I'd love to really work with him. Cause again, just he and I were just so perfectly simpatico. And also the thing is, is that we both understood what the other person was good at and we basically said, "I'm going to let you do this thing, and I'm gonna, and you let me do this other thing." And that's the best working relationship yeah, you could ever ask for. Yeah, and and it was just he and I had just had such great energy and synergy together. So John got the job at Dynamics, and uh, around the time that we were getting toward the the last, you know, we were in the final stages of implementation for uh, Planet's Edge. Um, we were not in final beta testing yet but we were, were finishing up you know basically all the text had been written the manual had been written that was another thing where i, I helped with the manual on planet's mm -hmm. edge i really kind of regret the way i did the manual for, for we did the, the manual for, for planet's edge because honestly i think i got a little too artsy for my own good and i should have actually <laughs> explained more about this is what the controls do uh, <laughs> uh, because the manual is a little arcane for most people um uh, because we sort of were, were operating under this well you know the the controls are fairly self-explanatory no 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 they weren't. <laughs> but, but I, i'm young i'm stupid okay i'm 24 right uh, <laughs> and, um so um uh anyway so john calls me up and says 
I have a reference from a major New York Times fantasy author. Uh, we need a writer that can basically help me develop this, uh, you know, uh, kind of adapt this or whatever. Uh, I think you're, I think you're the only person in the industry that can do it. Honest to God, that's what he said. That's awesome. Uh, I, I, I didn't necessarily believe that, but if that's what he said, sure, okay, I'm gonna, t I'll take the compliment. And so, and also, this other thing was is this was a job uh, that would be living in the Pacific Northwest. In, and that is so, definitely more your style. That is definitely much more my style than Los Angeles with palm trees and traffic jams and just constantly being afraid of everything. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, um, anyway, uh, so that's how the link then happens that takes me to the next stop on our journey. All right, everybody, that will bring us to the end of our first part of our interview with Neil Halford. Uh, thank you all for listening, uh, and stay tuned next week where we will get into part two, which talks about Neil's time at Dynamics, uh, Betrayal at Crondor. Uh, we'll get into some of his uh, movie projects. Uh, that might be one long episode. We might split it up. I haven't decided yet. I'm still finishing that up. But uh, we really hope you enjoyed uh, our first part of this interview with Neil. And can't wait to see you all back here next week for the next part of our interview with Neil Halford. Till then, have fun, play games, and don't be dicks. <laughs>